0: Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. To celebrate the last four years and 400 episodes later on University of Adversity, we put together a special episode of the top 20 most memorable guests. Make sure to check out the episode and enjoy this video.
1: So, look, I went from the age of 16 until I was 25. Every day I was using drugs. Yeah. Every day from 16 to, to 25, nine years, I swore that I was not going to do it again. There was not a day that I did not decide I was not going to use again. That means I had nine years of me breaking commitments every day. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about drugs and how bad they are, and they are, they're terrible. Yeah. They, they, they do a lot more damage than people know. But what it was really damaging, even, even more than the drugs, was the, the, the sense of degradation and the repeated violation of my own agreements. I'm not going to do this again. You know, I was using drugs five and six times a day, not, not once I was using them all day long. So nine times three, sixty-five times five or six times a day. Like it was, I don't know what that number is. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. 3,600 times five. So it's, you know, 15,000 times. I said, I wouldn't. And I broke my agreement. Yeah. Well, you do that long enough, man, and you don't trust yourself anymore. And that was the biggest problem with the drugs. That could have been gambling. It could have been cheating on your partner. Could have been, you know, at work saying you're going to do something and you don't do it. Everybody has these issues. Yeah. Mine just happened to be drugs, which you use enough drugs and you're not going to, you're going to start looking bad. The body starts wearing out. Yeah. I weighed 135 pounds at 24 years old.
0: Yeah, that's. Uh, it, that's
1: 35 yeah. pounds lighter than I am today. I was sick, man. I was sick. My body was sick. You know, I was, I was literally like, if you're asking for details, I was, I had trouble even using the bathroom because my, 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 my organs were starting at 24 years old, were starting to not function. Hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't have sex anymore. 23 years old, I was having trouble having sex. Wow. And, and, um, and I hated myself. So that where I worked, they didn't trust me. My family didn't trust me. If, if somebody needed something and needed to know somebody was going to show up, they would never call on me. So uh, at 25, I went to a treatment center. I called a priest a friend of mine, Charlie Dubois. He's my, he was my priest. And he had, a, he had an alcohol problem. And I knew he had cleaned up. And I called Charlie up and I said, hey, can you get me to that place? Wherever you went, can, can you get me in there? And um, he flew on the plane over there with me, dropped me off. 20, 26 days later, I came home and I never used drugs again.
2: I've never been the person because I was always an independent working as an actress since I was 17. So yeah. I always felt like guys held me back. I kind of have a guy mentality on that. So I never wanted to be in a relationship. I never wanted to be married. I always, I always thought, they're gonna hold me back in life. And and so I always understood that. I've never told Grant not to work, but, but when we were first married, his recreational time, I wanted his recreational time, but he wanted to give his recreational time to his brother and play Xbox. I wanted to like murder him. <laughs> uh, I was like, I think I just made the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, I was used to being this gun toting, Cause I, I, I shot shotguns at the time I was ranked 10th yeah. in California. I was just used to being in a man's world. I wasn't used to like a guy kind of kicking his brother over me. That was new to me, but it was, it was at that time when I had to realize, look, either you're going to get a divorce because that didn't work for me because I was looking for, I couldn't look on what I could take the responsibility for. And what I took responsibility for at that time was that I was looking to him to fulfill me. And that's not fair fair to do to anyone because even if he would have given me the time, it wouldn't have been enough because I had given up my gun and the guys. I mean, I wasn't dating the guys, but I just thought it was inappropriate to be on a squad with guys where I'm traveling to Vegas and this and that and shooting in competitions. And you know, when I'm trying to have a new family with a guy, you know, right? But I've given that up, and then I expected him to give me all of the things that I had given up, so I had to look at well, how do I fulfill myself in a non FU way, but in a way to where I fulfill myself and then can get back to the relationship and also become an asset. So these things take time to figure out and people have to evolve. And it, you know, it takes, it takes really being honest and real with yourself. And then, you know, when we figured out who does what in the relationship, we had to figure out who has what strengths and what weaknesses. Cause I'm, I wanted, I was a boss of me. I mean, I didn't get very far, but I was the boss. I'm I'm the chick. I was this independent woman who was never going to let a guy tell me what to do or control me or anything like that. But when it came to figuring out who does what in a relationship so we would stop fighting and get on the same team, I had to take that honesty pill again i say, you know what? He's way better at business. He knows all of that. So he's going to make the business financial decisions because I had no track record and it wasn't good. Yeah. When I had had, you know, and then I'm going to do all of this and this and this because he, he's not so great in those areas. And sometimes that is a, a hard pill to, to take and, and to figure out and get on the same page. It's not like we just magically were magical together. It's a created relationship. That's the thing. It's not a fairy tale. It's not like there's this perfect person out there. You kind of make yourself as perfect as you can be and kind of, you know, where I'm at right now in my relationship with Grant is if he's not giving me what I want, I try to take it upon myself and make it a game of, well, how can I get him to give me what I want in a behind the scenes kind of magical way? Yeah. Which is interesting. It gives me a game and a challenge without, you know, trying to go and yell at him and make him wrong. And which is my first instinct. Yeah, Yeah, no. It's not easy. My point is, is it's not easy, and it's it's an it's a constant evolution, and it's a constant create, and and never just gets on this place where you figure each other out and then it's perfect, and then you just get to go on easy streets.
3: Well, I learned to have the perspective over time, but perspective matters because. You know, you can look at something from a different angle and see a different thing. You know, that's, yeah. that's what perspective's all about. So there was two kids, you know, one rich, one poor, the rich kid, they put him in a room full of shit, came back, pissed off, put a poor kid in the room full of shit, came back happy as hell, throwing it around. They asked the rich kid, what's the problem? He says, he put me in a room full of shit. What do you think? That's the poor kid. What are you so happy about? He said, with all this shit, there has to be a pony in here somewhere. So same situation, you know, different perspective, different attitude, different outcome, different, you know, viewpoint. So it's just a choice when it boils down to it. And I developed that choice over years of realizing when we wake up in the morning, Lance, if I send to you, I'll give you a million dollars cash but you can't wake up. You'd say, of course not. Even 10 million, even 20 million, technically any amount of money. So you want to wake up in the morning, but when we do, we don't appreciate it as if someone just handed you $10 million. So imagine if you really actually got $10 million cash every single morning, the excitement, the relief, the enthusiasm you would have, you know, just think about a million, dude, you get pumped up think, damn, that'd be awesome free money all the time. Oh my Lord. It would be unbelievable. But yet we wake up, which is worth far more than a million dollars, but nobody's appreciative to that level. Why? Well, it's just because they haven't really looked at it from that perspective. So I call it the million dollar morning, which is wake up with that kind of gratitude and then, you know, knock out four things. But ultimately I think perspective boils down to a choice. You can choose happiness you can choose your perspective and you can choose gratitude like i'm i'm grateful to wake up in the morning so the second i wake up my eyes open the first thing i think about is oh my god i get another day like this is unbelievable it makes me want to leap out of bed and start attacking the day sometimes i'll open my eyes at 3 30. i get another day i'm up i'm adam why because man like i get another day and so problems don't seem like problems they seem like opportunities you know, back when I couldn't afford rent, I couldn't, I, you know, I was late on my car payments. I'd get up, realize I'm lucky to get up. I'm, I'm lucky to be ambulatory. I'm lucky to have breath. I'm lucky to be healthy, you know. And, and now it's not that I, ha- you know, oh, I have to pay rent or get kicked out. I get to pay rent or get kicked out. I get to find a way to pay rent. It was like a challenge or a game or a puzzle. And so i just trained myself to think that way so now when there's problems i'm like yippee-ki-yay let's figure out how to handle this deal and and if there is no solution to a problem well then it's not really a problem is it
4: how did richard branson quit eighth grade with no money teachers told him he'd be a lo- loser become one of the most wealthy people in the world how because they found a way to take their underdog or their disadvantages and use them as fuel and they fly right past the people who hit Lotto or have resources or have a trust fund. Not even in the same world. I mean, think about something like Mother Teresa or, or Martin Luther King. Changed the world, absolute underdogs, they didn't have it. So I'm telling my story well simultaneously, I just wanna share with everybody, if you feel like an underdog, congratulations. If you don't have the resources, you don't have the support from your friends and family, in fact, you get told to be realistic, stop being a dreamer, congratulations. You have the ingredients to be a winner. And if you don't feel like an underdog, then I want to teach you to have an underdog mindset because being complacent or feeling privileged will get you nowhere, not internal happiness and not external success. So for me, I'm making this a long introduction. Lance, you haven't said one word we, and I we, apologize. We love but I'll it, wrap it, up. We here. love
0: it. We love hearing you. I'll wrap
4: it up here. Um, I, know there, I knew there was more for me. Didn't really know how to get it. I just worked hard, failed, worked hard, and I started being mentored by other people. In my 20s, I got Tony Robbins course. Uh, off of an infomercial because that was the only way it was accessible to me back in those days. My family told me I was nuts, C- friends told me I was crazy. I paid for knowledge, what are you a fool? My, my dad legitimately said, I, I got a bridge I could sell you. that's a term from way back, to talking about selling you the Brooklyn Bridge. Long story short, I started getting knowledge and I realized, wow, I have, all, I have everything I need. I don't need someone to fund my business. I don't need my parents or my girlfriend or my fiance or anybody to support me. I have all I need. I don't need the right, perfect education. I don't need to live in Beverly Hills or the perfect air. All I need is what all the successful people throughout time had. They turned disadvantages into a superpower and became resourceful. They use the power of people telling them they can't to fuel them. They they move quick on their feet and all of these things. And I started uh, a collision shop on my own in my twenties. I started uh, doing real estate. I started cutting firewood. I got a tow truck business going, and then I started buying raw land, and then I started subdividing land, then I had 30 apartments, and then I just kept growing and growing, and after getting Tony Robbins' course, I decided I wanted to create a course because he changed my life. I wanted to change other people's lives. In 1999, I did my first infomercial. I struggled terribly. I was, using, I was flipping real estate to fund the infomercial to be in the knowledge industry. Uh, every time I'd lose five grand, 10 grand, I'd flip another house and fix another car. I funded it. I failed miserably, did good, failed miserably, and long story short, through lots of ups, ups and downs, I promise you, no matter where you are when you're listening to this, broken than broke, struggling or doing okay, wanting to go another level. I've been broke, lived in a trailer park, also got to 100 grand a year, 100 grand you know a month, 100 grand a week, like 100 grand a day. Like I've been through every phase in this journey and now I'm blessed to say, uh, on the other side of being an, a quintessential underdog, stressed as a kid, worried I wouldn't uh, amount to anything or be able to help my family change their lives. I've been blessed. I'm a multiple New York Times bestselling author. I've, I've started over 13 companies. I've had more success than I've ever imagined possible. I get to travel around the world. I get to be friends with my heroes and that's not to brag everyone, that's to inspire. I am no special, more special than any single person. Listen, I had no privileges, but I did have an underdog advantage. I just didn't know it at the time and that's why I'm so excited to get this book to the world so people can learn it sooner.
5: Every single entrepreneur that people look up to in the world has mega failures, not once, over and over and over, even now when they're successful. Let me give you an example. Mark Zuckerberg arguably is one of the best entrepreneurs in history, built one of the biggest companies in history and acquired some of the best companies in history, right? Along the way, let's not talk about his failures in the past. What about his failures now, being a mega, mega, mega zillionaire billionaire with 40, $50 billion. He buys companies or buys features, launches them. He has tens of thousands of employees infinite amounts of money. I can't even count how many of them have already failed, 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 failed over and over and over at least 10 or 20 that I can think off the top of my head that he acquired for 180 million, 700 million, 55 million, 1 billion, closed down, closed down, closed down, closed down. He didn't even have to close them down. If you think about it, he could scale them down and just not talk about it. This is a guy that has failed over and over and over. The same thing happens with Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, all of these guys that are tycoons of the industry, Richard Branson, he's got over a hundred brands. Let's talk about the 40 or 50 that failed, right? Even though he has an ungodly amount of money, infinite amount of employees, unlimited branding marketing access, he still fails even when he's got the huge fast forward button. So anybody that says that failure is bad, it's, it's insanity. Everybody fails from every single level.
6: So, you know, I've always had an optimistic attitude, which helps me in a quantum way to be positive, to see the glass half full. That was a good start. Mm. But when you really can shift the paradigm uh, to be happy or excited... When adversity arises, to have pure faith, and you know, I've been blessed to be mentoring Dan Fleischman since he was nineteen. and took his <laughs> yeah. first company public. We were blessed to go to the same high school. Just I'm so much older than he is. Uh, we had a great uh, relationship for a long time. But we both are, you know, optimists. We're someone that have that optimistic attitude. But where the paradigm really shifts is when you realize what you already are. See, mm. when you're trying to go get happiness, or trying to get wealthy, or get worthy or you know, get whatever it is you wanna attach your emotions to, you actually automatically create resistance, void shortages and obstacles and separation. When you shift the paradigm and say, I am healthy, I am wealthy, I am worthy, I am happy, what am I doing to interfere with it? Now, pain, suffering, adversity, becomes an indicator that you have something to learn and see life's about these lessons and the lessons will keep on coming until you learn them. And if you haven't learned them, they're going to result in adversity or pain. And so when you create this formula of understanding how things change, accelerate and grow, how you end up being in a better place, now it does become a game. Because you realize that, like I said before, adversity is just a turn signal in the game, telling you, man, You know, go past. You know, go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass until you spin a twelve. It's the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm being punished. No, I'm not. I'm setting myself up for the next role, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a better role than the one before. The biggest adversity I face today and always face is E, G, O. Ego is not my amigo. It is Mm -hmm. there, and the better I get at identifying the triggers of my ego that take the blood out of my brain that make me utilize the primal state of fear, separation, inferiority, superiority, anger, frustration, worry, resentment, and guilt, all of the things that create interference and waste my time, emotion, money, and energy, all of it sucked away from the time I've been a little boy until today. I'm on a constant quest to speed up the process to identify when I'm in ego-based consciousness, Stop, not resist it, oversell it, back and sell it, lie to it, cheat to it, manipulate it. Instead, just stop, get to center, get to neutral, drop by breathing through my nose and out through my mouth, and then identifying what I want, who can help me, who I can help, how I'm gonna get it done, and what I should be doing now by prioritizing what's important to me by the what, the who, and the how, and then not finding my why, but applying my why to the what, the who, the how and the now, when I have learned to learn to love what I do, when I have created a system to find the light, the love and the lessons in what I'm doing, then ego itself becomes the only and biggest adversity in my life because I now know that I give meaning to everything I see that I can't find outside of myself what I can't find inside of myself, that I'm in control of my mindset, my heart set, and the conscious things that I do. And so if I can look internally through radical humility and live my life and pursue my potential and identify and hopefully only spend minutes and moments in ego, not days, weeks, months and years, man, I'll be a lot better off.
7: So when I got hit, When I was riding my motorcycle and I got hit by an SUV, it was really serious. But as I was laying in the road, bleeding out, my femoral artery was severed. My leg was crushed into like, I mean, there were pieces of the bone that were blown out of my leg. So I had for two, just to give you some perspective on the, you know, I had a 1% chance of my leg being saved from amputation. And even that 1% chance, that was my glimmer of hope that I chose to hang on to that got me through 34 surgeries to save it. And I think that resilient people, when I really started to to look at it and study it and, and you know, I didn't go to some fancy university or anything. I'm just somebody who has fallen and stumbled and Got knocked down and hit rock bottom a couple of times and lost it all and had to start over, but I get up every time, so I started looking at what are some of the things that enabled me to get back up and I think one of my defaults is to think about what can I do next? Well, what am I going to do with this It's not necessarily what happens to us, but what we choose to do with what's left and so even when I was laying in the street blood Everywhere, uh, leg completely shattered. My foot was dangling off. One of my first thoughts was, "Oh gosh, well this can't be good. I might have to train clients on crutches for a while." So my first thought was, <laughs> "How am I going to train clients?" Not, wow. not, oh God, I'm you know I could be dying. Now all those thoughts came later, and then wow. when I was writing my book, the editor added something in and I got the manuscript back and I'm like you added in some stuff that's not I didn't write that like what is that he goes well I added in that you were angry and I said but I wasn't angry he said well anybody would be angry if an SUV ran them over in the road and I said but no I really wasn't angry if I was angry I wouldn't have had time to heal I didn't have time to be angry. I had to focus on the good in my life and I had to focus on the blessings that I did have and I had to focus on all that I could do to get through every single day of that hospital stay From that ended up being a total of about three and a half months. And if I was angry, I would have been, and we all have our, our stages and I have been angry, angry that my leg doesn't work properly anymore, angry that I have pain. You're being human, humans, of course,
0: right? The the different levels of being
7: human. But I didn't stay in that anger. Instead, I focused on, again, shifting my perspective to what I can do. I am
8: phenomenal at what I do on the comeback. I do not think I can be beat on turning your setbacks to comebacks. I've written two books on that. But more than the books, it's that's what I do on a daily basis. I, I get people out of crap. So we can talk a little bit about that, but I also think that, you know, one of the things that I'm loving that you're doing is this, this idea of adversity. You can have a promise of something. I write, wrote this down. You could have the right principles. You can have the right plans, but then you're going to have the problem. The problem is the adversity. Mm. It's the opposition to your mission. Most people Don't know how to handle adversity. Mm -hmm. That's why in studying you, I went, that rascal. Man, that's such a great title. Because most people do not know how to go through adversity. Dude, they don't. Yeah, I know. That's why they like detour, go the other way, stay addicted, stay with the covers over their head. Cause they don't want to face the facts of adversity, Mm. but you're willing kind of almost like a Russell brand is doing right now. You're willing to acknowledge the adversity and then we're, you bring it on thought leaders to say, yo, this is how to get through it. So I'd be one of your like, uh,
9: Compton born and bred adversity gurus. Look, I, I bankrupted my first business. It was a retreat center in Massachusetts, and we went belly up. I moved to California and was living very poor for a while because I moved out here. No one knew who I was. and um, But I, someone created this idea called a one-year seminar. If you could get a 100 people to pay you $30 uh, a, a month, you'd have $3,000 income, which back then was plenty of money to live on. And so I got 100 teachers to pay $30, either to hear me or some other educator talk about how to build self-esteem in the classroom. And so literally working two days a month to deliver that, uh, I, the rest of the time I could write. That's when I started writing my books. And um, you know I've been through two divorces. Uh, the first one was a five-year marriage, never should have got married. But I was my self-esteem was so low that when I realized I shouldn't get married, I couldn't tell 250 people, don't come to the wedding because they already had all their reservations. Um, I got two great kids out of it though. And my second marriage lasted 20 years. I lost half my wealth. I got to keep my job. As I say, they valued my business at about 13 million. They took all the money and gave it to my wife and I got to keep my business. So as I said, I got to keep my job. I was wearing my shirts three and four days in a row before I'd send them to the cleaners wearing t-shirts underneath them. So I could, you know, wear them over and over, um, you know, but I built it back up again. And I would say this, Every adversity, you know, the great quote from Napoleon Hill, every adversity has within it the seed of an equal greater benefit. I used to think when I got screwed in my marriage, you know, the divorce, uh, this is not fair and blah, 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 blah. Well, later, and I had offered my ex-wife, I said, I'll give you half of everything I earn for the rest of my life. If you'll let me keep half of the, the money in the land and stocks and all that. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. And so she got in my mind pretty much everything. And, um, you know, about 10 years later, we sold chicken soup for the soul to a group in New York for, I mean, well over $60 million. I mean, I can't tell you the exact number because it's a confidentiality agreement, but I would have had to give her half of that, and that, which was way less than what I gave her when I got divorced. So mm-hmm. every adversity is actually an opportunity. And you look back on the marriage that failed and you go, thank God, I'm not still with that person. Or that job you got fired from. I got fired from a job once, not rehired because I was... I had a beard back in the 70s and they thought I was a hippie and, you know, I wasn't, but I just liked to have a beard. Uh, (laughs) But they decided they weren't going to rehire me. So I know what that feels like. But because of that, I got a job. It was much better. Met W. Clement Stone, my mentor. So everything that happens to us, I always say, what's the opportunity that this is? What's the growth opportunity? And now I know I've survived everything that ever happened to me and it's always turned out better. So now I just look for that. I expect that makes it a lot easier. would always be first in my class. And I remember a few times um, I
10: would come in second. I think I came in third. And I remember my, my, my parents' reaction, actually my dad's reaction. My dad always used to say this. He said, the person that came in first in your class, does he have two heads? That was this, this idea of what makes that person better than you? And there was always this idea of, of competition, and it's still there to, the, to, to this point. I, I always have that idea that if you give me enough time, I could get really good at something, and i turn it into a competition. Well, it, it, this showed up later in my life as well, because they told me I couldn't play basketball. Now, I wanted to quit. I was like, this is too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, this, is, this is the mountain. It's way too hard for me to hide from the climb. And I remember I came home one day to my uncle. I was like, especially, after I just got cut from the high school team. He signed me up for this high school and I got cut. And um, I told my uncle, I don't want to do this anymore. And my uncle was like, eh, yeah, you weren't any good at it anyway. You know, yeah, don't worry about it. It was going to be too hard for you. And he knew what buttons to push for me. He knew that I wasn't going to let it go. And this is where, you know, at this point now, you know, the next day I went and bought a hoop, put it in front of my house. And after this, it's just I just started working on my game. I won't say this is what really pushed me over the edge. I think having somebody like Keith, who was a mentor, who would put his arms around me when I messed up in games. Like, I'm, just, I'm trying, but I scored the wrong hoop my first game. What do you do after this? Because this is the adversity moment. You no, know, it takes these little moments. It takes. And there's no one defining moment that says, "Oh, now I've made it and now I'm, I'm impenetrable." You know, I I don't think about. I don't. I don't doubt myself anymore. You have moments. You have little things that test you, and I I I keep coming upon these these things. But because of the previous battles that I faced, I think it's easier for me to make that decision now, or I, I'm more sure. That I can keep making this decision. There is yeah. challenges that come with that, bro. But
11: you, I, I think first before like your life doesn't change like that. It took eight years to get to that point. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it it takes a little bit of time. But and I was I was do, I was talking to some people I think earlier last week or something, and we were talking about for me the biggest part of it was I was not emo- I don't think or I was not emotionally ready slash stable to be able to deal with everything that comes with that. Like just to remember, like I was telling you, I'm from a small island, 400,000 people. I'm only hanging out basically with like my friends and family. I am the skinny kid, the kid that stutters, the kid that everybody is like, man, like you tall, like you cool, but I move from places to places. I don't really have stability like, People like, I'm realizing that I'm, I have an ability to see things and to understand things faster than people, but I'm bored very easily because nothing really get my interest. And then all of a sudden, oh, I go from this kid that kind of like people look down upon a little bit to like, oh, I mastered basketball. Like, y'all think I'm cool now. Uh-huh. Which one is it? Which, like, which one am I? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then fast forward to dealing with the ramification of like your presence, like me becoming a professional, impacts packs my family, it packs my friend, uh, the basketball agents. And you realize okay. that your presence means so much yeah. to so many people. And you're like, I just want to play basketball and I just go home.
10: Like, that's all, all I, I really want
11: to do. And I got to do all that other stuff. So it's like you're getting bombarded 24-7. Yeah. You step out of your door. So you kind you, you, you of have to navigate through the public figure aspect and dealing with the fact that you are a regular human being and you got feelings and you got things that, you, that you're going through. Yeah. But people more I mean, hear about that. It's like, yeah, bro, entertain me, like just play ball. You know, so that was, I think that was the difficulties of the emotional uh, uh, triggers that comes with a lot of money, a lot of attention. How do you deal with financial literacy? How do you deal with saying no? How do you deal with feeling like you got a lot of money, you're big down, but your family situation is fucked up? I'm sorry, I Oh,
0: Oh, that's all uh, right. Swear all you want, man. I don't care. All right, cool, cool, cool.
11: So yeah, that's that's basically that's basically what it is. Like, how do you deal with all of that? And sometimes it's, you do good, and sometimes you do bad. So I definitely had a couple of a uh, couple of each ones.
12: People that are successful, people that find the gold. Um, the danger there is that they work so hard, like I did, or you did, whoever, right? That you start to believe that just by working hard and persevering through, you're going to find gold again. And that's not always true. There just might not be gold there, right? And so you could work um, forever. So you got to be careful. So it's a good question you asked. So then the next question is, when do you pivot? Like, like a relationship that's toxic that you're in, and you're like, I'm just gonna persevere because every time I persevere, I find gold. So I'll just push through it, right? And so I concluded, uh, this is this is my opinion that the time you're here's how you decide when you're supposed to pivot. It really goes back to what's your purpose. So, if if you, for example, if you want to be the number one mountain climber in the world, like that's your goal, like Alex Honnold, right? Yeah, right. You're, you want to be, you don't care, live or die to be the number one man, that's your goal. Then you're about to summit Everest and a storm rolls in. And if you're the first one up there that day, you've got the gold, medal, whatever the thing, right? You yeah. probably go for it because that's your, that's your purpose. That's the reason you're on the planet. Yeah. However, if your purpose is to be the number one family man, the dad, you got like, you fucking turn around. Yeah. Because, because it's not like, and so, and so then you'd say, okay, well, Joe, based on what you're saying, here you are all in, you got a family. My goal at that point wasn't to own the number one obstacle race in the country. Why did I keep going? Yeah. Really, I, I had no choice. I mean, I, of course you have a choice, right? Yeah, like I like, like, you know, Ed Visters, Ed Visters, who's a famous American mountain climber says, Uh, Getting to the top is optional. Getting down is mandatory, right? Right. So think about that. And so it was pretty irresponsible of me to just keep putting the money in and keep, because I had a family at this point. It wasn't like I was single in in my 20s. Um, But there was something in my stomach that kept saying, this is going to work. This is going to work, right? I met a guy who's got a, a matcha soda business. He's been at it for seven years. He's pretty much broke. And he's like, I'm not quit. Like, I, I know it's gonna work. I'm not stopping. And, and so for him, um, it would almost be worse to quit, uh, yeah. right? It would be, it be like if he gave up digging for the gold. Like, he would just be upset with like. So in his case, gotta keep going for it. But he's got four kids at home, and they're not eating because of this soda ideas. Like,
0: yeah,
12: pull the record.
0: It makes sense.
12: So, so I think it depends on your purpose but don't do what i did because i'm i'm irresponsible and i'm just a maniac like i just yeah. stop but by the way I, i've had failures i had plenty of failures
13: you know the greatest adversity i faced in my life which was you know the sexual abuse with the coach yeah is now my greatest strength yeah. right powerful man because if i didn't go through that experience you know, you and I wouldn't be talking about, you know, this today. Yeah. And so that's what I always try to tell people is that, you know, there's incredible lessons in pain and suffering, right? Because pain is a great motivator for change or something's not right in my environment, right? And yeah. we can either succumb to it, which we did for a while, yeah, right? Or we can... You know, like I always say, take chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad, right? Take something negative and turn it into something positive. But so many people are completely paralyzed and are afraid to take that step or, or make that change in their life. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, those are the people that, you know, end up uh, killing themselves. Right. Yeah. The people who, you know, lose that hope and lose that will to live and, you know, can't see a way out or, you know, whatever it is. And, and it's unfortunate because like I said, we haven't created a, you know, that safe space yet in society. Mm. Um, I would say there's a lot of underground stuff that's happening, you know, but it's not mainstream yet, you know, and uh, And so, you know, I would say the reason why I'm so busy is,, um, you know, because of my vulnerability, and just saying, "Here it is, this yeah. is it, you know.
0: Um, That's healing for you too, though.
13: Oh, there's no question. It's- but what happens is, you know, in my audiences, you know, about halfway through my speeches, it is fucking dead, silent, nobody's fucking breathing, yeah. nothing. And I'm like, "Wow, OK, that safety's now in the room." Yeah, right? Because I got my whole entire audience to self-reflect on their own experience, right? And I can hear those fucking hamsters just running around in people's brains going, "Wow, you know?" And it's like that moment where you give people permission. Yeah. Talk about this stuff. Right. Mm. And, uh, and I always say vulnerability creates safety. And then when you have safety, you know, that's when the magic of healing happens is, you know, when people feel safe, amazing things can happen from that. But we haven't created that space yet.
14: I was wrong for 10 years. I was wrong that. If the animal body is traumatized, you can't change the stories, that the stories are actually adaptive coping behaviors that are a manifestation of a body that feels like it's uh, in danger. And the reason I was wrong was because um, I didn't have the type of trauma that I was studying. And so because my nervous system felt safe, I thought that the way that you heal is just to change your mind. And it was big for me to realize that I had gotten it fundamentally wrong, that if the body is traumatized, you can't change the stories, or it's incredibly hard to change the stories. And so the first thing that's really important to understand is trauma at its root is a biological function, and it's a biologically adaptive function to cope with the presence of a... Unescapable pain, essentially. And if you're a child and your caretaker is doing something that is painful, you can't escape because it's in your bio, it's in your evolutionary programming to have to try to adapt to stay connected to your primary caretakers, or you die. And that your trauma is not a reflection of you being incapable or that you did something wrong, or that you are broken. It's adaptive. And in my research, um, there's two classical types of PTSD. There's what's considered shock trauma, or classical PTSD. And then something that's really um, been advocated for in the last 10 years is this thing called complex PTSD. PTSD. So acute trauma comes from the classic example is that if you're a soldier and a bomb goes off near you, um, your body goes through some evolutionarily adaptive instincts to protect yourself. And I'll get into that more soon. And that if that's not fully processed, you have all these symptoms that get worse as time goes on because a bunch of things get impaired because you can't relax. Um, And, but there's this thing called complex PTSD, which most of us have some version of and complex PTSD as explained to me by a psychiatrist that works with PTSD is essentially uh, it's the trauma of 10,000 paper cuts. And the idea is that whenever you growing up had the authentic need to express an emotion, And you felt you couldn't for whatever reason that emotion gets stuck in you and for men it's in our culture it's most often crying or being vulnerable and for women in our culture it's most often anger and being vocal and that this can affect a lot of things and i'll get more into that soon in doing my research i propose that there's a third type of trauma And it's story trauma. And story trauma is essentially like one of the ways that our brains operates is it's creating a story about who we are and what the world is and what we're doing. And if you don't feel like you're making progress in that story, you're going to have depression and anxiety and some other things. And if you feel like you're making progress in that story, you're going to feel good. There are things that can happen to you that can completely shatter who you think you are, what you think the world is. And because those two things get shattered, your nervous system doesn't know how to measure whether or not it's growing. And that can cause massive depression or anxiety. And and an example of story trauma is, if you've been married to someone for 10 years and you come home one day and they're gone and they left a note saying that they've had an affair for the last eight years and that they've left you, You haven't been exposed to classical PTSD and it's also not complex PTSD in that moment, but something has broken you so fundamentally that you don't know who you are anymore because you're no longer a husband or a wife. Your past just broke because what you thought your past was for the last eight years with that partner is no longer true. And now you don't know what you're becoming. And so you're going through, you know, what some people would call the dark night of the soul. So those are the three types of trauma that I see.
15: And another thing that comes up into in relation to social media is there's this there's this immediacy, you know, in scrolling and in, in looking and, in, in you know, like it's like that, that um, kind of that wiring to just like have this immediacy of seeing things and feedback. And it's like, there's... For most people, what I would, you know, what I would say is probably pretty true is they're not really taking the time to actually tune into what feels true to me Mm -hmm. in my body, because it's also very easy, regardless of what your stance is on anything in the world. It's very easy to just subject yourself to like a like confirmation bias it's like, oh well, this actually agrees with what my belief is. So, like, fuck oh yeah of that. And and I think what would be really helpful, even in your own personal process, to not get so triggered by things, is to just have curiosity. Mm. You know, like it, it, it's to just it's something that I that I um, something that I I posted a story on my page today that was this woman speaking out the House of Representatives House of Representatives in Michigan, and one of the things I said is like. I'm not anti-anything. Mm-hmm. I'm I saw, pro I saw that sovereignty. I'm pro-sovereignty and I'm yeah. pro-personal choice, and that's for myself. So that's yeah. for anyone I could possibly disagree with. what you choose to do with your body. I fucking honor you. Yeah I'm not going to pretend like I know what it's like to walk in your shoes with what you see with your family and your, your, your family background and ancestry and your, your you know, immediate surroundings. like I have no idea but I believe that we deserve the sovereign choice to do what we want, you know? So, and, and at the same time, I also, and I just stay curious, you know, I could be totally fucking wrong about something yeah. and, and having, having the detachment enough from your identity to be curious and, and to take ownership and be like, you know what? I was really wrong about that. I thought, you know, I thought maybe because I saw this one thing that it could be this way, I was actually really wrong and I can own that. And it's actually interesting because I think people think that's a scary thing to be wrong. It's not fucking scary. It's actually the best
0: leaders, the best leaders can admit it. And that's how you trust them. If they get new information and they realize, Oh, I didn't know this. I, now I know this. And I think a bit differently. That's how you build trust with somebody.
15: Exactly. Cause there's, there's, there's authenticity which if you're ever going to be an in integrity with yourself, that is like a number one pillar is like totally being in your authenticity, which doesn't mean you're this fixed idea of something like I'm mm. moving and changing and flowing on a daily basis. You know, if my beliefs are just so fixed to only be this one thing, there's no space for me to grow with that level of rigidity. So, you know, I just stay open-minded and, and if you are in the habit Of just that level of authenticity it's easy to admit when you're wrong so then you don't get then you don't get in battles with people on social media about what you disagree with and why they're full of shit and they shouldn't be and they're you know they're morally wrong for their beliefs and it's just like do you want to live a life that is actually taking like do you want to live a life that is thriving or do you want to live in a life where you're giving all of your energy to things that aren't worth it? And that's not to say like, yeah, I actually do believe though, like that energy that I felt yesterday when I was frustrated, there's also a very sacred beauty to that energy because that energy in on some level is a sacred rage. It's a sacred rage against things that are, and justice and it's an energy that de- is demanding change.
16: One aspect of my journey to get here that I feel really called to share is actually my abduction experiences in childhood. So between the ages of four years old and 13 years old, I was abducted about six times. Um, I was abducted by the Galactic Federation, but specifically by the Greys. And they took me on board their ship and they actually put me into like school, I call it Earth School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they took me into training and they taught me all about quantum physics, vibrational frequency, consciousness, plants, animals, um, the planet, how to deal with humans. Uh, they taught us about all of that. I wasn't the only one on these ships either. Now, I grew up and I had extrasensory abilities, so it's very psychic. Um, I could see everyone's auras, chakras, um, ghosts and spirits, you know, as a kid. And then, you know, I really shut it all down. Around the age of 10, I just wanted to fit in. And at 16, you know, through a depression, through a lot of anxiety, uh, which I think a lot of starseeds experience, through the lowest of the low, the bottom of the pit, I ended up having my first ever past life regression. And that really woke me up to the concept of reincarnation. You know, this is not our first rodeo, um, which really validated how I was feeling. And it also introduced me to the fact that time is simultaneous. So at me, at 16 years old, I was able to experience five entire past lives. You know, that that was mind blowing to me. And if that's possible, if we can, in the present moment, experience the past, then it's possible that we can, in the present moment, experience the future. Uh, so, So I had my kind of reawakening at 16. At 18 years old, I had my first ever conscious abduction experience. And I call it conscious abduction because I was fully aware, like it was burned into my memory, um, that experience. And that opened me up to the world of aliens, consciously, that not only do past lifetimes on this planet exist, but past lifetimes off this planet exist. And at that time, I started giving whoever would listen to me past life regressions, and I would take them into many lifetimes, both on and off this planet in a variety of different incarnations, which allowed me as an objective observer to take a look at the different lessons um, and the different even you know jobs that these interdimensional beings have and kind of taking a look at the, the universal flow as a whole. And it wasn't until 24 years old where I had my first um, hypnosis, quantum hypnosis regression session. And it was in there where I actually wanted to find out why I couldn't remember most of my childhood and turns out it was, you know, the memory or the blocked memories of all of the abductions. And that once again, kind of blew open my world to, you know, the fact that I've been a part of, um, I don't know if it's a program or the hybridization, or if it's just a part of consciousness awakening you know the planet um but i've been a part of this my whole life and i'm so lucky lucky to at such a young age remember a lot of my past lifetimes and my mission and my purpose here on this planet now
17: thanks so many people see you know where somebody is and they think that they just wound up there yeah And, and that's why i think about the university of adversity podcast uh and just for me that's what it's all about. You know, challenge and adversity, what you go through in your life, that's what determines the story that you write, how you respond, getting up one more time, then you've been knocked down. And I just want to start by sharing, I'm not the only one on this, on this episode right now that has a story. Every single one of you, you have a story that defines who you are. It's a choice how often you connect to that story to drive your beliefs, your behavior, and the story that you write. Uh, I know you've highlighted some things about me to get people fired up and excited, but I believe my opportunity to be with all of you is a direct result of the fact I've been shaken to the core in my life personally, and I've been shaken to the core in my life professionally. And that's why I still believe in having coaches right now, because I've needed them to pick me up off that mat of life during the days that I felt like I could not go any further. Mm. And for many of you listening, I'm going to take you way back to when I was a, a little boy. And, you know, for everybody... Uh, You know, we learn so much as kids. Some of us face a lot of challenges, kids. Some of us have these great childhoods, and, you know, the worst thing that happens to you in in childhood is your ice cream falling off the cone at Baskin Robbins. I wish I could tell you that was my life, but I had to grow up fast. And so I'll take you back. Uh, My parents were divorced at six months old, never knew them together. Just significant challenges between my parents. So here I am, I had an older brother, Drew, and parents are divorced by five years old, my mother was diagnosed with a rare muscle disease called amyloidosis. And I'm going to take you guys right to it. Because that's one thing I do not hold back. I'm going to give you guys my heart, my passion, my fire. That's what drives me. That's what the burn is for me. And I want to connect you to yours and let you know that it's okay, no matter what your title is, whether you're leading your kids, whether you're leading somebody or team at work, the more authentic and transparent that you are, that's how we grow together. Not by acting like I'm perfect. Oh, I work with the Alabama football team and I work with all these NFL athletes and NFL teams I got this thing figured out no I don't know shit I'm trying the best I can to get this figured out in my life and so go back to my mom right 5 years old she's diagnosed with amyloidosis right I'm a little kid yeah this is 1983 And my mom, there were two hospitals in the United States at the time of her diagnosis treating the disease, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and the Boston Medical Center. Most people, let me take a step back, they don't even know what amyloidosis is. Lance, you're probably like, what is amyloidosis? Well, each and every single one of you in your muscles, you have amyloids. If you have an excess of amyloids, you have amyloidosis. The excess amyloids actually eat your muscles and you die. At the time of my mother's diagnosis, there was no cure for the disease. Even to this day, in 2020, there's still no cure for amyloidosis. There's treatments, no cure. So my mother gets on a plane in St. Louis, where I live, where I'm coming to you from right now. She gets on a plane and she goes to the Boston Medical Center, meets with a woman by the name of Dr. Martha Skinner. Dr. Skinner is one of the two foremost leading experts in the world for the treatment of amyloidosis. She tells Dr. Skinner, you're only the, Dr. Skinner tells my mom, you're only the second woman under 40 years old I've ever seen or heard of having amyloidosis you have two to four years to live how would you respond right how we respond to challenge and adversity determines the story we write I said it earlier Mm -hmm. and I've seen it in my life to know it to be true for you and so my mom takes out this journal right she's told she's gonna die there's no cure and she takes out this old blue mead notebook maybe yours was another color and she decides to allow that notebook to become a journal where she unleashed her positive mental attitude onto the world. She would write, beat the statistics, beat the odds, live with a disease that is chronic and fatal, believe in yourself, combat anything, purpose in life. My mother was driven by purpose. She helped me understand now when I look back on it, that purpose is what overtakes your pain. How many of you right now are struggling? There's so much to be struggling with in the world today. But if you allow your pain to defeat you, you don't move forward. If you allow your purpose to drive you, you will attack every single day relentlessly. And that's what my mother did. And even when there was 24 hour nursing care in our house, Lance, I remember when 24 hour nursing care came into the house, went all the way to the back of the house, removed all of the belongings from my mother's TV room, she had her bedroom behind it, and turned it into a 24 hour nursing center. Every single day without fail, my mother, driven by her purpose, to continue to be a leader for her two boys she would look down this long hallway ivy stand in tow sometimes it took one nurse sometimes it took two nurses and she'd put one foot in front of the other 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 so she got to the head of that dining room table and she would look over to the right at my older brother drew and say drew how was your day at school and then she would pan over to the left and she would look me dead square in the eyes and say honey how was your day at school you notice I got the honey because I was the younger son, Lance. (laughs) (laughs) I got to break break this up a little bit because I know you guys go deep on this podcast, but I also realize this is probably not what you expect. And I was watching my mother die before my eyes, Lance. There would be times by the time dinner was over, my mother would go back to her bedroom and the pain was so significant. She was so tired. I, as a seven-year-old boy now at the time, As a seven-year-old boy, I would have to tuck my mother under her IV wires at night to say goodnight. She couldn't make it to my bedroom to read books the way that she once did to me. That was my life. And so that's all I ever knew was challenge and adversity. Mm -hmm. And on November 2nd, 1986, my mother took the pen that she was writing with in this journal, and she passed it on to my brother and I to continue to write her story. And I deeply connect to that every single day. It's my mother's legacy. It's her passion. It's her fire. It's the way she lived her life as a teacher, as a leader, as an amazing mother of my brother and I, even though we, I had less than you know, eight years with my mom. Mm. And so I share that with you to say, I know that life is tough. I know that life is not easy. But I know that how you respond will be the difference. And I also know I'm not the only one that has a story. As I mentioned before I started, every single one of you, you has a story. So the question I have is, when you listen to this podcast, you know, do you actually listen to the stories of adversity and allow it to fuel you to know, man, maybe there's great strength in what I've been through. And that's what I found in my life is my adversity has brought me the greatest possible strength that I could ever have in my life.
0: So what we see here is we're dealing with the immune system. And the idea is that we're trying to understand the way that food influences our bodies from an immunologic level. And so autoimmunity is when the body is attacking itself. Inflammation is when the immune system is overly activated. So inflammation and autoimmunity are nearly synonyms. So, We're thinking about what foods are going to trigger the immune system and why they might trigger the immune system. And so, so, That was a burp. We should probably cut that out. (laughs) Is there a lag? (laughs) So we're trying to think about what foods are triggering the immune system. And the idea is that a lot of the dairy foods are very triggering to the immune system. And this is probably for a lot of reasons. Casein and whey are proteins in milk that just seem to be immunogenic. They're from animals, but they're pretty immunogenic. And if you think about it evolutionarily, Milk is probably not something that our ancestors were eating anywhere beyond their infancy. You know, like animal husbandry, using dairy in pastoral cultures is very recent in human evolution. And most people do not do well with dairy. I've seen it personally. I've seen a lot of people have much better responses to diet when they cut out dairy because of the immunogenicity of casein and whey. And then there's another problem with milk, which is this idea of morphin. So there's a compound in milk, casomorphin, which is like an opiate and it is addictive and it can change our satiety mechanisms and cause weight gain. And so generally, even though milk is from an animal, most people feel better without this in their diet. And so then we think, okay, does that make sense evolutionarily? And I would argue it does because we're not going to, you know, we're not going to I mean, you're not going to drink a lot of milk when you're hunting animals. You might kill a cow that's pregnant or, you know, that's lactating, in which case you might get a small amount of milk from that animal. But, you know, our ancestors were not keeping animals and milking them. We only had breast milk for our lives for most of human evolution. So it's not something that is very consistent with most people's adult health. Some people can tolerate it okay, but this gets back to the idea that every person has a little bit of a different immunologic tolerance And people are going to react immunologically to certain foods. And milk is one of those foods that can be very triggering for people um, within the the animal kingdom. You know, going back to what you said, a carnivore diet is also, you could call it a whole foods animal-based diet. It's an animal-based diet. And this is where a little bit of the confusion comes in. People say like, oh, you can eat cheese on a carnivore diet. And I think, well, You can eat cheese if you want to eat cheese on any diet. I mean, nobody's going to tell you what to eat. You can choose to eat cheese. But if you're doing a carnivore diet or you're trying to eliminate foods that are going to trigger your immune system, then you want to take out dairy, for sure. If you have an immune condition, then you definitely want to take out dairy. And I would argue you also want to consider eliminating things like even egg whites. Egg whites are another thing in the animal kingdom that are kind of triggering for people. Probably less people react to egg whites than they do to dairy, but you know, within the clients that I work with, I kind of have these different versions of like more and less elimination diets within a carnivore space. But the whole premise of a carnivore diet is that plants are probably the biggest offender. I would argue that more than any other food, the kingdom of plants is triggering people's immune systems. And this is through lectins, this is through anti-nutrients, this is through plant toxins, that putting plant molecules in our bodies, I would argue that is the biggest contributor to immune system activation incorrectly uh, in human in human food consumption. And there's also dairy and there's also egg whites. But then you get into like foods that are probably foods we were eating all the time 70,000, 300,000 years ago as we evolved as Homo sapiens and contacted Neanderthals. We were hunting animals and eating animal flesh, animal organs, animal connective tissue, animal bones, brains. Those are very common ancestral foods. We probably didn't eat as many eggs because they're pretty rare. But Um, Most people tend to tolerate the egg yolk much better than they do the white. But if you really want to do a simple diet that's very evolutionarily consistent for a human, then we're talking about this nose-to-tail carnivore diet, which I would define as a diet that is eating the whole animal. We're eating the bones. We're eating the muscle meat. We're eating the connective tissue. We're eating the organs. And if you look at all the different pieces of the animal, there are unique nutrients and all those things that we know humans need in terms of human nutrition so in order to get all the nutrients that we need we have to eat all of them the other permutation of a carnivore diet that i, I have concerns with is people who just eat meat they just want to eat steak and bacon and eggs all day yeah just the ribeye diet which is great you'll probably lose weight but you're definitely going to develop nutrient deficiency and that's where people would say like that's a crazy diet you can't just eat steak and i would say yes 100 percent. you cannot just eat steak no indigenous person on the face of the planet has just eaten steak. Ever. You can't just eat steak and eggs. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You can't just eat steak and eggs. You, I mean, eggs are great. When you put it in yeah. an egg yolk. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're adding a lot of unique nutrients because you know, the steak is missing a lot of the B vitamins. Yeah. Um, but those are found in the liver. But if you eat the whole animal, it's just like you're, you know, you imagine yourself 70,000 years ago, homo sapiens moving up from Africa into the Neander Valley of Europe. And you're hunting animals and you kill a buffalo. Man, your tribe is going to eat every last piece of that animal that you can eat. You're not going to be like, ah, uh, this part's a little chewy. I'm not going to eat it. No way. What that piece of that animal is what stands between you and starvation, and you and being healthy enough to reproduce, or you and being healthy enough to hunt tomorrow. You are going to get every little bit of nutrient out of that animal. You're going to eat those bones when you can. You're going to crack those bones open and get the bone marrow. You're going to eat the brain. You better believe they're going to eat the tongue and the eyeballs. And there's unique nutrients in all those places. You know, I've said on other podcasts that if you could design the ultimate multivitamin for a human, it would be an animal, you know, eating the whole animal. They contain all the nutrients that humans need in the most bioavailable forms. So the first thing to come up to, to understanding is that, you know,
18: as as suicides have increased due to job loss, financial issues, and, and ultimately fear around what's going to happen in the world, that wasn't created because of this. It's been exacerbated because of this. Um, But that already existed, right? We are, our mental health epidemic that we're in already existed before COVID, already existed before the lockdowns and all the things that have transpired in 2020. It's been exacerbated, the cracks are being shown. Mm. And truthfully, when I talk about a sick care health system, a sick care system, um, there is no real validity to any SSRIs and the reason for that is you are simply doing patchwork. The idea that all of a sudden I have a genetic disorder where my body doesn't produce enough serotonin is complete fucking quackery. It is absolute quackery. And one of the guys who I've really studied and learned from is Dr. Gabor Mate who is up in British Columbia, Canada. That's where I am. Who's been a licensed psychotherapist and psychologist and psychiatrist for decades also has done hundreds of ceremonies with ayahuasca. He's led ceremonies. And one of the things that he found is that at the root of all addiction is trauma. And so no matter what you're working on, whether your brain is mirroring a side of depression and has low serotonin, or whether you um, actually come to understand bits and pieces of your trauma, we all have addictions to all sorts of shit, whether that's TV, social media, sex, Um, alcohol, cigarettes, you name it. We all have ways that we choose to self-medicate and we all have ways and we choose to numb our consciousness. So we don't have to look at the stuff that's happened to us and the hardships that we faced. And what psychedelics have the ability to do is reveal that layer by layer, not all at once. You don't get the kitchen sink like any good therapist, ayahuasca or psilocybin knows You don't tell the person on their first day, hey, you were raped when you were four. This shit happened to you, and here's how you solve that. It's too much. And so like peeling layers off of an onion, you work bit by bit. And the ability for that on a self-reflection level, on a healing level, and then, of course, on an exploratory level, just to answer questions, you know, basic questions on the nature of reality, basic questions on what God is, with intention, surrender, and the right set and setting, we have the ability to explore those things and come to know them for ourselves. And it's not, um, you know, Ted Decker talked about this. You wrote 49th mystic and rise of the mystics. Um, fantastic. One of my favorite humans on the earth. He talked about this. What religion has done is they have told us about the avocado. They've written about the avocado. They've described it. They've colored it for us. And, and if you, You know, I can tell you everything about an avocado. I can describe its flesh. I can describe the inside, the meat. I can describe the size of the seed, the texture, the flavor, all of these things. But until you eat an avocado, you have no idea what an avocado is. Mm. And psychedelics have been called entheogens, which translates to be in God. And it's not to say that all those experiences are God experiences, but certainly in the right container, they can be. And that is a way to know the divine in your own way. And it's, uh, one of the beautiful things about them is that each ceremony is completely unique. If I give enough space between those journeys, I can guarantee it's going to be a unique experience that will continue to unfold my consciousness in a way that is expanding in a way that is softening in a way that allows me to live in the world in a very practical and beautiful way that makes me a better father, uh, a better husband, better at communication, you know, and, and through healing within uh, to not continue any of those patterns that have been handed down from us generation after generation after generation onto the next generation. And that's very important that we do the work to clean up the messes that our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents left for us. It's our duty to do that. And I think psychedelics give us that Avenue now, of course, it's not for everyone. And, and, and I don't mean that in the sense that like everyone on the planet, you know, some people can't have it. Some people can. It's, it's that it is available to those who are ready and there is a calling for those and it will be more accessible down the road. Still, we find ourselves in a legal gray area and that's a complication for a lot of people. And some of the Western medicine practices that have come along and done ketamine journeys are not really holding the same space that a Kudendero cool and in the Amazon would. Right? So we see some of this, um, you know, McDonald's drive in, come get your fucking shot and then leave the room and 45 minutes later, wake you up and tell you to drive home. That's not the way either. Right? There needs to be respect and reverence when we think about these things, because anytime you're doing psychic surgery, what these things are you can do more harm than good. And a lot of people, you know, you talk to Anahata and different therapists that I've worked with. They've, they've been on the other side of that coin where they've seen more harm than good. And so intention must go past what you're trying to get out of it. It must also encapsulate what the entire container looks like. Who's guiding? What music is being played? Is there a sense of safety and feeling held throughout the experience? Are the people that are guiding me through this experience qualified to do so? Or is it a, you know, a blue belt in jiu-jitsu that's, that's running the show versus a black belt, somebody that's made it their life practice to guide me through this? I've, I've been guided from many different types of people, and I've had beautiful experiences across the board. But I've seen people you know, not being left more whole than when they started. I've seen people actually be injured through the experience and take months to unpack that. And, um, I think the, the better we come to understand the indigenous cultures that have worked with these medicines for thousands of years, the better we understand how to navigate them for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend people make the pilgrimage, you know, I know it costs money and I know it takes time out of your schedule, but if you can make it to the Amazon to a spirit quest with, uh, you know, the late great Don Howard, where, where his space is still up and running blue morpho down in Peru, or of course, Soltara in Costa Rica, which is my absolute favorite place. Um, I'm there in I said, yeah, I said, Oh man, I'm pumped for you, brother. (laughs) I sat, I sat through a three hour orientation and and I was dragging my heels to get there. The only reason I went is because I thought I'd look bad if I didn't show up. That's why I went and I was like, I've done 22 ceremonies. I don't need to sit in this fucking orientation. And I get there and and an hour into it, I look at my wife, Natasha, and we're both of us are like, if we had been here for our first ceremony, that would have changed the way we worked with all medicines.
16: The way
18: they unpack in that orientation, how you work with the teacher ayahuasca, how you work with the consciousness that is in that medicine will impact every ceremony you do after that, no matter where you go, including the consciousness of psilocybin or the consciousness of ketamine. All of these things have their own, their own doorway into the divine. And when you understand how to work with them, it makes a world of difference in how your experience turns out, you know, ultimately, in the end, we're all going to have hard experiences. Doesn't matter if you think you had no trauma as a child or not, you're still going to get squeezed at different times. And there's beauty in that. There's beauty in that because it teaches us to surrender. Mm -hmm. And we're always in this paradox of what we intend to make happen within the world and what we need to surrender to. Because there's always something, it's not just our world, right? We always have things going on outside of us. There's always the external that we work in concert in the symphony of life with and and once we come to understand how we can intend and create and make manifest as co-creators on this planet and at the same time surrender to the how and when that happens and surrender to the all that is right now that allows us to navigate with peace ramdas speaks about that the the it is on the same line of polarity clinging and aversion if i have a version of something i don't want to have happen or if I cling to the good thing that I do want to have happen, that's still on that same line of polarity that looks different, that still equates to suffering. And when we come to understand that, we can begin to say, okay, I, I can intend, I can have goals, I can still try, but I'm not going to cling to outcome. And I'm not going to sit there and hold that thing so tight that I don't allow it to come through in a different way than I had planned. You know, And that really, that really gives us a point of, setting our intentions and actually working towards those, but still being in a state of allowing the thing to take form in whichever way it will come and when it will come.
19: Most people have a problem where they lose themselves at the cost of the relationship or they lose the relationship for themselves. So they don't know how to balance sovereignty and togetherness. And I think that's, that's a very delicate balance because you know, where, where does you know, the real argument was made well, if you don't take this thing, then you might make me sick. And it's like, but wait, you took the thing. And it doesn't prevent transmission. Like that was such a log. You had to do so much mental gymnastics to even have a conversation with someone who couldn't make that make sense. But that shows you it's like you have to just exit that conversation because there's no use. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Milgram experiment where they show different lengths of lines. And you know, they have shorter and longer lines and then they have a group of people and some of them are actors. And they say, which line is the shortest? I can't remember if it's shortest or longest, doesn't matter. And the actors go that one, but it's clearly not that one. Like, it's so obvious, like, but what they see is that that collective group saying that line's longer influences people who are like, how the fuck, how do you think that's, no. But they eventually, most of them actually agree because of the pressure. Right. And so we need to ride. like the more people that speak up is how you find each other, but it's also how you find courage is Mm -hmm. like, you're like, oh, I'm not the only one, which really what's going on is we're making a negotiation. My social risk is lower because these other people have spoken up. Um, And so you know, this, one of the main solutions is to actually start to use your voice and it can simply be, I'm not okay with how some of this has been done. Mm-hmm. And you can easily start with lockdowns. They never had scientific data. They were never supported by data. They never were. They don't really make sense from a, a, a transmission point of view either. Um, and uh, they didn't work and they harmed tons of people. And people were speaking out at the beginning, but there was a collective effort to silence the experts from the Great Barrington Declaration. There's released emails from the NIH saying from Francis Collins, we need a massive takedown, public takedown of these physicians. Not, hey, we should maybe be curious as to why some of the world's best epidemiologists and public health officials are actually not okay with lockdowns. And they have a different solution, but instead they silence them. And whenever you silence dissent, which is true of relationships too, um, as Jonathan Haidt would say, everybody becomes more stupid because what's beyond disagreement is actually a deeper truth for everybody. And, you know, we've really made a, this interesting effort in the last two years, but it's certainly been around for the last eight, 10, to to just not have dialogue. We don't know how to, we can't, if someone criticizes something they're seen as against that thing, rather than, Hey, maybe we could do this differently or better. And you see that about very sensitive topics um, like the trans movement. You know, these are all very tough things to navigate because if you have conversations about them, um, you'll often get canceled or attempted. Someone will get on there and they will be cyber bullying. So, I mean, the Internet's one of the greatest things ever in human history, but it's also if you don't dance in it, you know, and choose whether you enter it and exit it, you'll get lost in it. And it's incredibly toxic too, like anything, you know.